Section 41 of London Labour and the London Poor, Volume 2, by Henry Mayhew. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Of the contractors, or employers, premises, and so on. At page 171 of the present volume, I have described one of the yards devoted to the trade in house dust, and I have little to say in addition regarding the premises of the contracting or employing scavengers. They are the same places, and the industrious pursuits carried on there, and the division and subdivision of labour, relate far more to the dustman's department than to the scavengers. When the produce of the sweeping of the streets has been thrown into the cart, it is so far ready for use that it has not to be sifted or prepared, as has the house dust, for the formation of breeze and so on, the mac being sifted by the purchaser. These yards or wharfs are far less numerous and better conducted now than they were ten years ago. They are at present fast disappearing from the banks of the Thames. There is, however, one still at Whitefriars and one at Millbank. They are chiefly to be found on the banks of the canals. Some of the principal wharfs near Maiden Lane, St Pancras, are to be found among unpaven or ill-paved or imperfectly macadamised roads, along which run rows of what were once evidently pleasant suburban cottages, with their green porches and their trained woodbine, clematis, jasmine, or monthly roses. These tenements, however, are now occupied chiefly by the labourers at the adjacent stone, coal, lime, timber, dust, and general wharfs. Some of the cottages still presented on my visits a blooming display of dahlias and other autumnal flowers. And in one corner of a very large and very black-looking dust-yard, in which rose a huge mound of dirt, was the cottage residence of the man who remained in charge of the wharf all night, and whose comfortable-looking abode was embedded in flowers, blooming luxuriantly. The gay-tinted hollyhocks and dahlias are in striking contrast with the dinginess of the dust-yards, while the canal flows along, dark, sluggish and muddy, as if to be in keeping with the wharf it washes. The dust-yards must not be confounded with the night-yards, or the places where the contents of the cesspools are deposited, places which, since the passing of the Sanitary Act, are rapidly disappearing. Upon entering a dust-yard, there is generally found a heavy oppressive sort of atmosphere, more especially in wet or damp weather. This is owing to the tendency of charcoal to absorb gases, and to part with them on being saturated with moisture. The cinder-heaps of the several dust-yards, with their million pores, are so many huge gasometers retaining all the offensive gases arising from the putrefying organic matters which usually accompany them, and parting with such gases immediately on a fall of rain. It would be a curious calculation to estimate the quantity of deleterious gas thus poured into the atmosphere after a slight shower. The question has been raised as to the propriety of devoting some special locality to the purposes of dust-yards, and it is certainly a question deserving public attention. The chief disposal of the street manure is from barges, sent by the Thames or along the canals, and sold to farmers and gardeners. In the larger wharfs, and in those considered removed from the imputation of scurfdom, 
six men and often but four are employed to load a barge which contains from 30 to 40 tons. In such cases, the dust yard and the wharf are one and the same place. The contents of these barges are mixed, about one-fourth being mac, the rest street mud and dung. This admixture on board the vessel is called by the bargemen and the contractor's servants at the wharfs, Leicester, properly Lista, a load. We have the same term at the end of our word ballast. I am assured by a wharfinger who has every means of forming a correct judgment. It may be estimated that there are dispatched from the contractor's wharfs twelve barges daily, freighted with street manure. This is independent of the house dust barged to the country brickfields. The weight of the cargo of a barge of manure is about 40 tonnes, 36 tonnes being a low average. This gives 3,744 barge loads, or 132,784 tonnes or loads yearly. For it must be recollected that the dirt gathered by pauper labour is dispatched from the contractor's yards or wharfs, as well as that collected by the immediate servants of the contractors. The price per barge load at the canal, basin or wharf, in the country parts where agriculture flourishes, is from £5 to £6, making a total of £20,595 sterling. The difference of that sum and the total given in the table, £21,147, may be accounted for on the supposition that the remainder is sold in the yards and carted away thence. The slop and valueless dirt is not included in this calculation. Of the working scavengers under the contractors, I have now to deal with what throughout the whole course of my inquiry into the state of London labour and the London poor, I have considered the great object of investigation, the condition and characteristics of the working men, and what is more immediately, the labour question, the relation of the labourer to his employer, as to rates of payment, modes of payment, hiring of labourers, constancy or inconstancy of work, supply of hands, the many points concerning wages, perquisites, family work, and parochial or club relief. First, I shall give an account of the class employment, together with the labour season and earnings of the labourers, or economical part of the subject. I shall then pass to the social points concerning their homes, general expenditure, and so on, and then to the more moral and intellectual questions of education, literature, politics, religion, marriage, and concubinage of the men and of their families. All this will refer, it should be remembered, only to the working scavengers in the honourable or better paid trade. The cheaper labourers I shall treat separately as a distinct class. The details in both cases I shall illustrate with the statement of men of the class described. The first part of this multifarious subject appertains to the division of labour. This, in the scavenging trade, consists rather of that kind of gang work, which Mr Wakefield styles simple cooperation, or the working together of a number of people at the same thing, as opposed to complex cooperation or the working together of a number at different branches of the same thing. Simple cooperation is, of course, the ruder kind, but even this, rude as it appears, 
is far from being barbaric. The savages of New Holland, we are told, never help each other even in the most simple operations, and their condition is hardly superior, in some respects it is inferior, to that of the wild animals which they now and then catch. As an instance of the advantages of simple cooperation, Mr. Wakefield tells us that, quote, in a vast number of simple operations performed by human exertion, it is quite obvious that two men working together will do more than four, or four times four men, each of whom should work alone. In the lifting of heavy weights, for example, in the felling of trees, in the gathering of much hay and corn during a short period of fine weather, in draining a large extent of land during the short season when such a work may be properly conducted, in the pulling of ropes on board ship, in the rowing of large boats, in some mining operations, in the erection of a scaffolding for a building, and in the breaking of stones for the repair of a road, so that the whole road shall always be kept in good repair. In all these simple operations, and thousands more, it is absolutely necessary that many persons should work together at the same time, in the same place, and in the same way. End of quote. To the above instances of simple cooperation, or gang-working, as it may be briefly styled in Saxon English, Mr. Wakefield might have added dock-labour and scavenging. The principle of complex cooperation, however, is not entirely unknown in the public cleansing trade. This business consists of as many branches as there are distinct kinds of refuse, and these appear to be four. They are one, the wet, and two, the dry, house refuse, or dust and night soil, and three, the wet, and four, the dry, street refuse, or mud and rubbish. And in these four different branches of the one general trade, the principle of complex cooperation is found commonly, though not invariably, to prevail. The difference as to the class employments of the general body of public cleansers the dustmen, street sweepers, nightmen and rubbish carters, seems to be this. Any nightman will work as a dustman or scavenger, but it is not all the dustmen and scavengers who will work as nightmen. The reason is almost obvious. The avocations of the dustman and the nightman are in some degree hereditary. A rude man provides for the future maintenance of his sons in the way which is most patent to his notice. He makes the boy share in his own labour and grow up unfit for anything else. The regular working scavengers are then generally a distinct class from the working dustmen and are all paid by the week, while the dustmen are paid by the load. In very wet weather, when there is a great quantity of slop in the streets, a dustman is often called upon to lend a helping hand, and sometimes when a working scavenger is out of employ, in order to keep himself from want, he goes to a job of dust work, but seldom from any other cause. In a parish where there is a crowded population, the dustman's labours consume, on an average, from six to eight hours a day. In scavengery, the average hours of daily work are twelve, Sundays of course excepted, but they sometimes extend to fifteen and even sixteen hours in places of great business traffic while in very fine dry weather the twelve hours may be abridged by two, three, four, or even more. 
Thus, it is manifest that the consumption of time alone prevents the same working men being simultaneously dustmen and scavengers. In the more remote and quiet parishes, however, and under the management of the smaller contractors, the opposite arrangement frequently exists. The operative is a scavenger one day and a dustman the next. This is not the case in the busier districts and with the large contractors, unless exceptionally or on an emergency. If the scavengers or dustmen have completed their street and house labours in a shorter time than usual, there is generally some sort of employment for them in the yards or wharfs of the contractors, or they may sometimes avail themselves of their leisure to enjoy themselves in their own way. In many parts, indeed, as I have shown, the street sweeping must be finished by noon or earlier. Concerning the division of labour, it may be said that the principle of complex cooperation in the scavenging trade exists only in its rudest form, for the characteristics distinguishing the labour of the working scavengers are far from being of that complicated nature common to many other callings. As regards the act of sweeping or scraping the streets, the labour is performed by the gangsman and his gang. The gangsman usually loads the cart, and occasionally, when a number are employed in a district, acts as a foreman by superintending them and giving directions. He is a working scavenger, but has the office of overlooker confided to him, and receives a higher amount of wage than the others. For the completion of the street work, there are the one-horse carmen and the two-horse carmen, who are also working scavengers, and so called from their having to load the carts drawn by one or two horses. These are the men who shovel into the cart the dirt swept or scraped to one side of the public way by the gang, some of it mere slop, and then drive the cart to its destination, which is generally their master's yard. Thus far only does the street labour extend. The carmen have the care of the vehicles in cleaning them, greasing the wheels and such like, but the horses are usually groomed by stablemen who are not employed in the streets. The division of labour then among the working scavengers may be said to be as follows. First, the ganger, whose office it is to superintend the gang and shovel the dirt into the cart. Second, the gang, which consists of from three to ten or twelve men who sweep in a row and collect the dirt in heaps ready for the ganger to shovel into the cart. Third, the carman, one horse or two horse as the case may be, who attends to the horse and cart, brushes the dirt into the ganger's shovel and assists the ganger in wet sloppy weather in carting the dirt and then takes the mud to the place where it is deposited. There is only one mode of payment for the above labours pursued among the master scavengers, and that is by the week. First, the ganger receives a weekly salary of 18 shillings when working for an honourable master. With a scurf, however, the ganger's pay is but 16 shillings a week. Second, the gang receive in a large establishment each 16 shillings per week, but in a small one they usually get from 14 shillings to 15 shillings a week. When working for a small master, they have often, by working over hours, to make eight days to the week instead of six. Third, the one-horse carman receives 16 shillings a week in a large and 15 shillings in a small establishment. Fourth, 
The two-horse carman receives 18 shillings a week, but is employed only by the larger masters. On the opposite page, I give a table on this point. Some of these men are paid by the day, some by the week, and some on Wednesdays and Saturdays, perhaps in about equal proportions, the casuals being mostly paid by the day, and the regular hands, with some exceptions among the scurfs, once or twice a week. The chance hands are sometimes engaged for a half-day, and, as I was told, jump at a bob and a joey, one shilling fourpence, or at a bob. I heard of one contractor who not unfrequently said to any foreman or gangsman who mentioned to him the applications for work, Oh, give the poor devils a turn if it's only for a day now and then. Piecework, or as the scavengers call it, by the load, did at one time prevail, but not to any great extent. The prices varied according to the nature and the state of the road, from two shillings to two shillings sixpence the load. The system of piecework was never liked by the men. It seems to have been resorted to less as a system or mode of labour than to ensure assiduity on the part of the working scavengers when a rapid street cleansing was desirable. It was rather in the favour of the working man's individual emoluments than otherwise, as may be shown in the following way. In Battlebridge, four men collect five loads in dry and six men seven loads in wet weather. If the average piece hire be two shillings threepence a load, it is two shillings ninepence three farthings for each of the five men's day's work. If two shillings twopence a load, it is two shillings eightpence halfpenny, the regular wage and an extra halfpenny. If two shillings, it is two shillings sixpence, and if less, which has been paid, the day's wage is not lower than two shillings. At the lowest rates, however, the men, I was informed, could not be induced to take the necessary pains, as they would struggle to make up half a crown. While, if the streets were scavenged in a slovenly manner, the contractor was sure to hear from his friends of the parish that he was not acting up to his contract. I could not hear of any men now set to piecework within the precincts of the places specified in the table. This extra work and scamping work are the two great evils of the peace system. In their payments to the men, the contractors show a superiority to the practices of some traders, and even of some dock companies. The men are never paid at public houses. The payment, moreover, is always in money. One contractor told me that he would like all his men to be teetotalers if he could get them, though he was not one himself. But these remarks refer only to the nominal wages of the scavengers, and I find the nominal wages of operatives in many cases are widely different, either from some additions by way of perquisites and so on, or deductions by way of fines and so on, but oftener the latter, from the actual wages received by them. Again, the average wages or gross yearly income of the casually employed men are very different from those of the constant hands. So are the gains of a particular individual, often no criterion of the general or average earnings of the trade. Indeed, I find that the several varieties of wages may be classified as follows. 1. Nominal wages, those said to be paid in a trade. 2. Actual wages, those really received, and which are equal to the nominal wages, plus the additions to or minus the deductions from them. 
three casual wages the earnings of the men who are only occasionally employed four average casual or constant wages those obtained throughout the year by such as are either occasionally or regularly employed five individual wages those of particular hands whether belonging to the scurf or honourable trade whether working long or short hours whether partially or fully employed and the like six general wages or the average wages of the whole trade constant or casual fully or partially employed honourable or scurf long and short hour men and so on and so on all lumped together and the mean taken of the whole now in the preceding account of the working scavengers mode and rate of payment i have spoken only of the nominal wages and in order to arrive at their actual wages we must as we have seen ascertain what additions and what deductions are generally made to and from this amount the deductions in the honourable trade are as usual inconsiderable all the tools used by operative scavengers are supplied to them by their employers the tools being only brooms and shovels and for this supply there are no stoppages to cover the expense neither by fines nor by way of security are the men's wages reduced the truck system moreover is unknown and has never prevailed in the trade i heard of only one instance of an approach to it a yard foreman some years ago who had a great deal of influence with his employer had a chandler's shop managed by his wife and it was broadly intimated to the men that they must make their purchases there complaints however were made to the contractor and the foreman dismissed one man of whom i inquired did not even know what the truck system meant and when informed thought they were pretty safe from it as the contractor had nothing which he could truck with the men and if he palsies himself, the man said, he's not likely to let anybody else do it. There are, moreover, no trade payments to which the men are subjected. There are no trade societies among the working men, no benefit nor sick clubs. Neither do parochial relief and family labour characterise the regular hands in the honourable trade, although in sickness they may have no other resource. Indeed, the working scavengers employed by the more honourable portion of the trade, instead of having any deductions made from their nominal wages, have rather additions to them in the form of perquisites coming from the public. These perquisites consist of allowances of beer money, obtained in the same manner as the dustmen, not through the medium of their employers, though to say the least through their sufferance, but from the householders of the parish in which their labours are prosecuted. The scavengers, it seems, are not required to sweep any places considered private, nor even to sweep the public footpaths, and when they do sweep or carry away the refuse of a butcher's premises, for instance, for by law the butcher is required to do so himself, they receive a gratuity. In the contract entered into by the city scavengers, it is expressly covenanted that no men employed shall accept gratuities from the householders a condition little or not at all regarded, though I am told that these gratuities become less every year. I am informed also by an experienced butcher, who had at one time a private slaughterhouse in the borough, that until within these six or seven years, he thought the scavengers and even the dustmen would carry away entrails and so on in the carts from the butcher's and the knacker's premises for an allowance. 
I cannot learn that the contractors, whether of the honourable or scurf trade, take any advantage of these allowances. A working scavenger receives the same wage when he enjoys what I have heard called, in other trade, the height of perquisites, or is employed in a locality where there are no such additions to his wages. I believe, however, that the contracting scavengers let their best and steadiest hands have the best perquisited work. These perquisites, I am assured, average from one shilling to two shillings a week, but one butcher told me he thought one shilling sixpence might be rather too high an average, for a pint of beer, tuppence, was the customary sum given, and that was, or ought to be, divided among the gang. In my opinion, he said, there'll be no allowances in a year or two. By the amount of these perquisites, then, the scavenger's gains are so far enhanced. The wages, therefore, of an operative scavenger in full employ and working for the honourable portion of the trade may be thus expressed. Nominal weekly wages, 16 shillings. Perquisites in the form of allowances for beer from the public, 2 shillings. Actual weekly wages, 18 shillings. Of the casual hands among the scavengers. Of the scavengers proper, there are, as in all classes of unskilled labour, that is to say, of labour which requires no previous apprenticeship, and to which any one can turn his hand on an emergency, two distinct orders of workmen, the regulars and casuals, to adopt the trade terms. That is to say, the labourers consist of those who have been many years at the trade, constantly employed at it, and those who have but recently taken to it as a means of obtaining a subsistence after their ordinary resources have failed. This mixture of constant and casual hands is moreover a necessary consequence of all trades which depend upon the seasons and in which an additional number of labourers are required at different periods. Such is necessarily the case with dock labour, where an easterly wind prevailing for several days deprives thousands of work and where the change from a foul to a fair wind causes an equally inordinate demand for workmen. The same temporary increase of employment takes place in the agricultural districts at harvesting time, and the same among the hop growers in the picking season, and it will be hereafter seen that there are the same labour fluctuations in the scavenging trade, a greater or lesser number of hands being required, of course, according as the season is wet or dry. This occasional increase of employment, though a benefit in some few cases, as enabling a man suddenly deprived of his ordinary means of living to obtain a job of work, until he can turn himself round, is generally a most alarming evil in a state. What are the casual hands to do when the extra employment ceases? Those who have paid attention to the subject of dock labour and the subject of casual labour in general may form some notion of the vast mass of misery that must be generally existing in London. The subject of hop-picking again belongs to the same question. Here are thousands of the very poorest employed only for a few days in the year. What, the mind naturally asks, do they, after their short term of honest independence has ceased? With dock labour the poor man's bread depends upon the very winds. In scavenging and in street life generally, it depends upon the rain. And in market gardening, harvesting, hop-picking and the like, it depends upon the sunshine. 
how many thousands in this huge metropolis have to look immediately to the very elements for their bread, it is overwhelming to contemplate. And yet, with all this fitfulness of employment, we wonder that an extended knowledge of reading and writing does not produce a decrease of crime. We should, however, ask ourselves whether men can stay their hunger with alphabets or grow fat on spelling books, and wanting employment and consequently food, and objecting to the incarceration of the workhouse, can we be astonished, indeed, is it not a natural law, that they should help themselves to the property of others? Concerning the regular hands of the contracting scavengers, it may perhaps be reasonable to compute that little short of one half of them have been to the manor born. The others are, as I have said, what these regular hands call casuals or casualties. As an instance of the peculiar mixture of the regular and casual hands in the scavenging trade, I may state that one of my informants told me he had at one period, under his immediate direction, fourteen men, of whom the former occupations had been as follows. Seven always scavengers, or dustmen, and six of them nightmen when required. One potboy at a public house, but only as a boy. One stableman, also nightman. One formerly a pugilist, then a showman's assistant. One navvy. One ploughman, nightman occasionally. Two unknown, one of them saying, but gaining no belief, that he had once been a gentleman. Total, fourteen. In my account of the street orderlies will be given an interesting and elaborate statement of the former avocations, the habits, expenditure and so on, of a body of street sweepers, 67 in number. This table will be found very curious, as showing what classes of men have been driven to street sweeping, but it will not furnish a criterion of the character of the regular hands employed by the contractors. The casuals, or the casualties, always called among the men, casualties, may be more properly described as men whose employment is accidental, chanceful, or uncertain. The regular hands of the scavengers are apt to designate any newcomer, even for a permanence, any sweeper not reared to or versed in the business, a casual, casual. I shall, however, here deal with the casual hands, not only as hands newly introduced into the trade, but as men of chanceful and irregular employment. These persons are now, I understand, numerous in all branches of unskilled labour, willing to undertake or attempt any kind of work, but perhaps there is a greater tendency on the part of the surplus unskilled to turn to scavenging, from the fact that any broken-down man seems to account himself competent to sweep the streets. To ascertain the number of these casual or outside labourers in the scavenging trade is difficult, for, as I have said, they are willing in their need to attempt any kind of work, and so may be casuals in diverse departments of unskilled labour. I do not think that I can better approximate the number of casuals than by quoting the opinion of a contracting scavenger familiar with his workmen and their ways. He considered that there were always nearly as many hands on the lookout for a job in the streets as there were regularly employed at the business by the large contractors. This I have shown to be 262. Let us estimate, therefore, the number of casuals at 200. 
According to the table I have given at pages 213 and 214, the number of men regularly or constantly employed at the metropolitan trade is as follows. Scavengers employed by large contractors, 262. Ditto small contractors, 13. Ditto machines, 25. Ditto parishes, 218. Ditto street orderlies, 60. Total working scavengers in London, 578. But the prior table given at pages 186 and 187 shows the number of scavengers employed throughout the metropolis in wet and dry weather, exclusive of the street orderlies, to be as follows. Scavengers employed in wet weather, 531. Ditto in dry weather, 358. Difference, 173. Hence it would appear that about one-third less hands are required in the dry than in the wet season of the year. The 170 hands, then, discharged in the dry season are the casually employed men, but the whole of these 170 are not turned adrift immediately they are no longer wanted, some being kept on odd jobs in the yard and so on. Nor can that number be said to represent the entire amount of the surplus labour in the trade, but only that portion of it which does obtain even casual employment. After much trouble and taking the average of various statements, it would appear that the number of casualty or quantity of occasional surplus labour in the scavenging trade may be represented at between 200 and 250 hands. The scavenging trade, however, is not, I am informed, so overstocked with labourers now as it was formerly. Seven years ago, and from that to ten, there were usually between 200 and 300 hands out of work. This was owing to there being a less extent of paved streets and comparatively few contractors. The scavenging work, moreover, was scamped, the men, to use their own phrase, licking the work over anyhow, so that fewer hands were required. Now, however, the inhabitants are more particular, I am told, about the crooks and corners and require the streets to be swept oftener. Formerly, a gang of operative scavengers would only collect six loads of dirt a day, but now a gang will collect nine loads daily. The causes to which the surplus of labourers at present may be attributed are, I find, as follows. Each operative has to do nearly double the work to what he formerly did, the extra cleansing of the streets having tended not only to employ more hands, but to make each of those employed do more work. The result has, however, been followed by an increase in the wages of the operatives. Seven years ago, the labourers received but two shillings a day, and the ganger two shillings sixpence. But now the labourers receive two shillings eightpence a day, and the ganger three shillings. In the city, the men have to work very long hours, sometimes as many as 18 hours a day, without any extra pay. This practice of overworking is, I find, carried on to a great extent, even with those master scavengers who pay the regular wages. One man told me that when he worked for a certain large master, whom he named, he has many times been out at work 28 hours in the wet, saturated to the skin, without having any rest. This plan of overworking again is generally adopted by the small masters, whose men, after they have done a regular day's labour, are set to work in the yard, sometimes toiling 18 hours a day, 
and usually not less than sixteen hours daily. Often so tired and weary are the men that when they rise in the morning to pursue their daily labour, they feel as fatigued as when they went to bed. Frequently, said one of my informants, have I gone to bed so worn out that I haven't been able to sleep. However, he added, there is the work to be done, and we must do it or be off. This system of overwork, especially in those trades where the quantity of work to be done is in a measure fixed, I find to be a far more influential cause of surplus labour than overpopulation. The mere number of labourers in a trade is per se no criterion as to the quantity of labour employed in it. To arrive at this, three things are required. 1. The number of hands. 2. The hours of labour. 3. The rate of labouring. For it is a mere point of arithmetic that if the hands in the scavenging trade work 18 hours a day, there must be one-third less men employed than there otherwise would, or in other words, one-third of the men who are in work must be thus deprived of it. This is one of the crying evils of the day, and which the economists, filled as they are with their overpopulation theories, have entirely overlooked. There are 262 men employed in the metropolitan scavenging trade. One half of these, at the least, may be said to work 16 hours per diem instead of 12, or one-third longer than they should, so that if the hours of labour in this trade were restricted to the usual day's work, there would be employment for one-sixth more hands, or nearly 50 individuals extra. The other causes of the present amount of surplus labour are the many hands thrown out of employment by the discontinuance of railway works, a less demand for unskilled labour in agricultural districts, or a smaller remuneration for it, a less demand for some branches of labour, as ostlers and so on, by the introduction of machinery applied to roads, and through the caprices of fashion. It should, however, be remembered that men often found their opinions of such causes on prejudices, or express them according to their class interests, and it is only a few employers of unskilled labourers who care to inquire into the antecedent circumstances of men who ask for work. As regards the population part of the question, it cannot be said that the surplus labour of the scavenging trade is referable to any inordinate increase in the families of the men. Those who are married appear to have on the average four children, and about one half of the men have no family at all. Early marriages are by no means usual. Of the casual hands, however, full three-fourths are married, and one-half have families. There are not more than ten or a dozen Irish labourers who have taken to the scavenging, though several have tried it on. The regular hands say that the Irish are too lazy to continue at the trade, but surely the labour of the hodman in which the Irish seem to delight, is sufficient to disprove this assertion, be the cause what it may. About one-fourth of the scavengers entering the scavenging trade as casual hands have been agricultural labourers, and have come up to London from the several agricultural districts in quest of work. About the same proportion appear to have been connected with horses, such as ostlers, carmen, and so on. The brisk and slack seasons in the scavenging trade depend upon the state of the weather. In the depth of winter, owing to the shortness of the days, more hands are usually required for street cleansing, but a clear frost, 
renders the scavenger's labour in little demand. In the winter, too, his work is generally the hardest, and the hardest of all when there is snow, which soon becomes mud in London streets. And though a continued frost is a sort of lull to the scavenger's labour, after a great thaw his strength is taxed to the uttermost, and then indeed new hands have had to be put on. At the West End, in the height of the summer, which is usually the height of the fashionable season, there is again a more than usual requirement of scavenging industry in wet weather. But perhaps the greatest exercise of such industry is after a series of the fogs, peculiar to the London atmosphere, when the men cannot see to sweep. The table I have given shows the influence of the weather, as on wet days 531 men are employed, and on dry days only 358. This, however, does not influence the street orderly system, as under it the men are employed every day, unless the weather make it an actual impossibility. According to the rain table given at page 202, there would appear to be, on an average of 23 years, 178 wet days in London out of the 365. That is to say, about 100 in every 205 days are rainy ones. The months having the greatest and least number of wet days are as follows. Number of days in the month in which rain falls. December, 17. July, August and October, 16. February, May and November, 15. January and April, 14. March and September, 12. June, 11. Hence it would appear that June is the least and December the most showery month in the course of the year. The greatest quantity of rain falling in any month is, however, in October, and the least quantity in March. The number of wet days and the quantity of rain falling in each half of the year may be expressed as follows. The first six months in the year, ending June, there are 84 wet days in total, 10 inches of rain falling in total. The second six months in the year, ending December, there are 93 wet days in total, 14 inches of rain falling in total. Hence we perceive that the quantity of work for the scavengers would fluctuate in the first and last half of the year in the proportion of 10 to 14, which is very nearly in the ratio of 358 to 531, which are the numbers of hands given in table pages 186 and 187, as those employed in wet and dry weather throughout the metropolis. If then the labour in the scavenging trade varies in the proportion of five to seven, that is to say that five hands are required at one period and seven at another to execute the work, the question consequently becomes, how do the two casuals who are discharged out of every seven obtain their living when the wet season is over. When a scavenger is out of employ, he seldom or never applies to the parish. This he does, I am informed, only when he is fairly beaten out, through sickness or old age, for the men hate the thought of going to the big house, the union workhouse. An unemployed operative scavenger will go from yard to yard and offer his services to do anything in the dust trade or any other kind of employment in connection with dust or scavenging. Generally speaking, an operative scavenger who is casually employed obtains work at that trade for six or eight months during the year, and the remaining portion of his time 
is occupied either at rubbish carting or brick carting, or else he gets a job for a month or two in a dust yard. Many of these men seem to form a body of street jobbers or operative labourers ready to work at the docks, to be navvies when strong enough, bricklayers' labourers, street sweepers, carriers of trunks or parcels, window cleaners, errand goers, porters, and occasionally nightmen. Few of the class seem to apply themselves to trading, as in the costermonger line. They are the loungers about the boundaries of trading, but seldom take any onward steps. The street sweeper of this week, a casual hand, may be a rubbish carter or a labourer about buildings the next, or he may be a starving man for days together, and the more he is starving, with the less energy will he exert himself to obtain work. It's not in a starving or ill-fed man to exert himself otherwise than what may be called passively. This is well known to all who have paid attention to the subject. The want of energy and carelessness begotten by want of food was well described by the Tin Man at page 355 in volume 1. One casual hand told me that last year he was out of work altogether three months, and the year before not more than six weeks, and during the six weeks he got a day's work sometimes at rubbish carting and sometimes at loading bricks. Their wives are often employed in the yards as sifters, and their boys, when big enough, work also at the heap, either in carrying off or else as fillers in. If there are any girls, one is generally left at home to look after the rest and get the meals ready for the other members of the family. If any of the children go to school, they are usually sent to a ragged school in the neighbourhood, though they seldom attend the school more than two or three times during the week. The additional hands employed in wet weather are either men who at other times work in the yards or such as have their turns in street sweeping, if not regularly employed. There appears, however, to be little of system in the arrangement. If more hands are wanted, the gangsman who receives his orders from the contractor or the contractor's managing man is told to put on so many new hands, and overnight he has but to tell any of the men at work that Jack and Bob and Bill will be wanted in the morning, and they, if not employed in other work, appear accordingly. There is nothing, however, which can be designated a labour market appertaining to the trade. No house of call, no trade society. If men seek such employment, they must apply at the contractor's premises, and I am assured that poor men not unfrequently ask the scavengers whom they see at work in the streets where to apply for a job, and sometimes receive gruff or abusive replies. But though there is nothing like a labour market in the scavenger's trade, the employers have not to look out for men, for I was told by one of their foremen that he would undertake, if necessary, which it never was, by a mere round of the docks, to select two hundred new hale men, of all classes, and strong ones too if properly fed, who in a few days would be tolerable street sweepers. It is a calling to which agricultural labourers are glad to resort, and a calling to which any labourer, or any mechanic, may resort, more especially as regards sweeping or scraping, apart from shovelling, which is regarded as something like the high art of the business. We now come to estimate the earnings of the casual hands, whose yearly incomes must of course be very different from those of the regulars. 
the constant weekly wages of any workman are of course the average of his casual, and hence we shall find the wages of those who are regularly employed far exceed those of the occasionally employed man. Nominal yearly wages at scavenging for 25 weeks in the year at 16 shillings per week, £20, 16 shillings. Perquisites for 26 weeks at 2 shillings, £2, 12 shillings. Actual yearly wages at scavenging, £23, 8 shillings. Nominal and actual weekly wages at rubbish carting for 20 weeks in the year at 12 shillings, £12. Unemployed six weeks in the year, zero. Gross yearly earnings, £35, 8 shillings. Average casual or constant weekly wages throughout the year, 15 shillings, 4 pence halfpenny. Hence the difference between the earnings of the casual and the regular hand would appear to be one-sixth. But the great evil of all casual labour is the uncertainty of the income, for where there is the greatest chance connected with an employment, there is not only the greatest necessity for providence, but unfortunately the greatest tendency to improvidence. It is only when a man's income becomes regular and fixed that he grows thrifty and lays by for the future. But where all is chance work, there is but little ground for reasoning, and the accident which assisted the man out of his difficulties at one period is continually expected to do the same good turn for him at another. Hence the casual hand, who passes the half of the year on 18 shillings, and 20 weeks on 12 shillings, and 6 weeks on nothing, lives a life of excess both ways, of excess of guzzling when in work, and excess of privation when out of it, oscillating as it were between surfeit and starvation. A man who had worked in an iron foundry, but who had lost his work, I believe through some misconduct, and was glad to get employment as a street sweeper, as he had a good recommendation to a contractor, told me that the misery of the thing was the want of regular work. I've worked, he said, for a good master for four months an end at two shillings eightpence a day, and they were prime times. Then I hadn't a stroke of work for a fortnight, and very little for two months, and if my wife hadn't had middling work with a laundress, we might have starved, or I might have made a hole in the Thames, for it's no good living to be miserable, and feel you can't help yourself anyhow. We was sometimes half starved as it was. I'd rather at this minute have regular work at ten shillings a week all the year round, than have chance work that I could earn twenty shillings a week at. I once had fifteen shillings in relief from the parish, and a doctor to attend us, when my wife and I was both laid up sick. Oh, there's no difference in the way of doing the work, whatever wages you're on for. The streets must be swept clean, of course. The plan's the same, and there's the same sort of management anyhow. End of section 41